This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. We have always been fascinated by the idea of celebrity. For many, it seems like a golden life. Fame and fortune and all the things that go along with it is bestowed on a few... And we have a human need to peek into their lives and see how the other half lives. We devour talk shows, celebrity-focused reality shows, and anything else that gives us a glimpse into the world of the famous. But there is a darker side to celebrity that we don't hear as much about, how celebrities are often stalked and sometimes threatened by those who claim to be fans. In the last episode, we learned the sad story of Selena, a young singing star who was gunned down by a fan, the president of her own fan club, no less and someone she considered a friend. But more often, celebrities are stalked and threatened by total strangers. Sometimes they are just a nuisance. Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, and Justin Timberlake have all had fans that have made pests of themselves, sending incessant letters and gifts, showing up wherever they go, and sometimes staking out their homes. Added security and restraining orders against these individuals sometimes takes care of the problem. But others are truly scary. Both Madonna and Selena Gomez have had constant threats made against their lives by unhinged fans who have become obsessed with them. It's an ongoing problem, and many celebrities have to take measures to keep themselves safe. In this series, we will discuss several well-known figures who have been stalked, threatened, and sometimes killed by fans. Join me for this installment of Fatal Fans. This is Chapter 1, Teresa Saldana. Teresa Saldana was born August 20, 1954, in Brooklyn, New York. She was adopted at five days old by Davina and Tony Saldana. Teresa was a beautiful child who always loved to dance. An injury to her shoulder stopped her dancing lessons. But by age 12, Teresa was in acting classes and being cast in plays. While performing in an off-Broadway musical in 1977, she was discovered by a talent scout and cast in two movies. Nunzio, and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Two years later, she would be featured in two more films, Raging Bull, the movie role she is most remembered for today, and a lesser-known film titled Defiance. It was this film role that would set off a chain of events that the young actress could not even begin to imagine. Arthur Jackson was born in Aberdeen, Scotland in 1935. His father was an alcoholic who left the family when Jackson was nine. His mother, Jean, was 32 when Jackson was born and suffered with symptoms of schizophrenia that were never diagnosed or treated. Jackson had a sister who he never met. Born one year after him, she was diagnosed as profoundly retarded at birth and immediately sent to the Woodlands Institute for Mental Defectives. Jackson and his mother subsisted off of government welfare and moved frequently. Because of this, Jackson, while possessing a normal intellect, was poorly educated. He was tested and his IQ was recorded at the low end of normal. He would drop out of formal education for good at the age of 14. Jean was reported to be pathologically self-centered, with little to no ability to nurture or support her son emotionally. Even so, Jackson would be very attached to his mother. One person who knew Jackson as a child says that he was shunned by the other children. Jackson had trouble making and maintaining relationships of any kind. He took to spending a big portion of his time in movie theaters. He was fascinated by American movies and American culture. Jackson began to show some symptoms of schizophrenia at age 15. 
Schizophrenia is a form of psychosis that causes a person's emotional, behavioral, and thought processes to be severely distorted. He started to have an abnormal obsession with sex and also believed sexual behavior to be a bad thing that caused a person to have poor character. He tried to improve his own character through extreme exercise regimens and strict diets. He was unable to hold a job due to his poor performance at work, as well as his inability to get along with his co-workers. He felt others tormented and laughed at him. While it's possible that Arthur was teased, schizophrenics often have trouble distinguishing benign behaviors of others and often see them as direct personal attacks. Schizophrenics often make bizarre connections between things that, in reality, have no relation to each other. At age 17, Jackson saw his family doctor. He felt tormented by his troubled mind and emotions, and equated it with his need to compulsively masturbate. He told his doctor he wanted to be castrated so he could be cured. He took the term dirty mind to be literal and felt that he was causing there to be dirt on his brain that was ruining him. He also asked for the dirt to be scraped off of his brain. His doctor sent him to a psychiatrist for evaluation. The psychiatrist who assessed him found that even though obsessed with sex, he would only masturbate but never sought out female companionship because he wanted to maintain his, quote, purity. Jackson also told his psychiatrist that he wanted to become an actor and about his close relationship with his mother. He was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and the doctor wrote that the outlook for his treatment was poor. He was sent to King Set Mental Hospital, where he voluntarily admitted himself for treatment. He was immediately started on two treatments that were supposed to reset the electrical impulses in the brain by disrupting its electrical activity. One was by reducing the blood sugar to such a degree as to put the patient into an insulin coma. The second treatment was by use of electric shock therapy. Jackson was subjected to these treatments daily. While it seems to have initially calmed his psychotic thoughts and improved his mood temporarily, over time his symptoms actually increased and soon he was experiencing hallucinations and increased paranoia. After four and a half months in treatment, his mother came to the hospital and insisted he be released. While the doctors at first tried to convince her he needed more treatment, they also noted that she herself was probably mentally ill. They were unable to hold him against his will, and he was released. Arthur moved home with his mother. During this time, he spent most of his time at the library obsessively reading about Hollywood. He would fixate on one subject— Earlier, it was medieval castles. Now it was film actors and Hollywood, and read and researched it for hours on end. However, he was still unable to hold a job, so his mother sent him to live with relatives in Canada. He seemed to do better there, perhaps because he was not living with his schizophrenic mother. Stress tends to increase symptoms in schizophrenics. But whatever the reason, after 18 months in Canada, he felt the need to go out on his own. He was able to easily enter the U.S. with only a British passport in 1955 and quickly made his way to New York. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, classified him as a resident alien, which made him eligible for the draft. He was called up to the draft board only a few months after entering the United States. Amazingly, he was able to pass the mental evaluation during the Army Medical Review, and he was sworn in as a private in the Army in the spring of 1955. While in basic training, he very quickly had problems, refusing to follow orders and disrespecting his superiors. Again, his mental illness caused him to feel especially singled out and tormented by others. Although, as a private, he wasn't asked to do anything more than any other enlisted person. He was court-martialed in August of that year and convicted of insubordination. 
He spent six months in a military jail and had $52 of his pay deducted each month. After his sentence, he was returned to training. He was able to finish his training and was then assigned to a post in Germany. Once again, he began to be written up for disrespect and not following orders. He kept getting transferred to different platoons and after a while was threatened with a second court-martial. Only then did he admit to having prior psychiatric treatment. His doctor at the Kingsett Mental Hospital was contacted and his records retrieved. The Army then decided to have him evaluated at the U.S. Army Hospital in Germany. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic and admitted as an inpatient to the psychiatric wing in June of 1956. His symptoms continued. He became belligerent, tried to threaten the doctors into releasing him, saying he would, quote, use all his influence to retaliate against them, unless he was released and returned to active duty. Two months after being admitted, he was transferred to the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Jackson once tried to commit suicide by taking sedatives while on a weekend pass, and was then after kept in a secured unit at the hospital. After several more months at the hospital, doctors concluded that he was no longer a danger to himself, but was unfit for further military service. He was discharged in February 1957. He was 23 years old and was deemed eligible for Social Security disability payments. Now free and with no obligations since money was coming in monthly from his Social Security payments, Jackson was able to fulfill his lifelong dream of going to Hollywood. He traveled across the United States to Los Angeles. One of Jackson's obsessions throughout his lifetime was architecture. He would fixate on a certain building or structures and spend hours researching them. First, it was Alcatraz. This obsession began with his fascination about a former inmate at the infamous prison located in the middle of the San Francisco Bay. The prisoner was a bank robber named Joseph Kretzer who had been killed by guards during a prison riot in 1946. Jackson had seen a film when he was only 11 years old titled The House Across the Bay that detailed this event in the history of the prison. He would be fixated on Kretzer and the prison at Alcatraz all of his life. Once in Los Angeles, he became obsessed with certain buildings and became so attached to them that he felt the need to save them from being destroyed. To this end, he began to write letters to President John F. Kennedy, this during his first year in office. They were so threatening in nature that they were passed along to the Secret Service for review. In his letters, he made reference to his British citizenship, so the Secret Service contacted the INS. His Army medical history was found out, and he was then rounded up and admitted to Patton State Hospital for psychiatric examination. Diagnosed once again as a schizophrenic, he was designated by the U.S. government to be an undesirable alien and was deported back to Scotland. Once back on his home soil, he was required to be evaluated by their public health authorities. He was then diagnosed in Scotland as a paranoid schizophrenic. He was asked to voluntarily admit himself to a hospital, but he refused. He became known in his hometown of Aberdeen, where he again lived with his mother, as an odd man who was obviously mentally ill, but other than sometimes being a nuisance, seemed mostly harmless. He spent a lot of time in the library researching architecture and other subjects. He often didn't eat, but spent the entire day from opening to closing in the library without leaving his tables and books. He would sometimes leave Aberdeen, especially in the summer months, and travel to London. Amazingly, more than once, he traveled even farther afield, one time boarding a ship from London to Rio de Janeiro, traveling throughout South America, and eventually arriving and crossing illegally into the United States by way of Miami, then through Texas, and on into Mexico. 
1966, he again crossed illegally into California over the Mexican border. Once again, he was compulsively drawn to try and visit Alcatraz, but the prison in the island had been permanently closed in 1963. Making it as far as San Francisco, he was arrested for trespassing at the Drake Hotel. Discovered to be an illegal alien, he was once again deported to Scotland. He now became obsessed with a variety of ailments for which he visited doctors frequently to have remedied. He would demand unneeded treatments and threaten the doctors with arrest and or lawsuits when they disagreed. His mother, still involved in his delusions, would back up his claims and make a nuisance of herself as well. There was one incident of violent acting out by Jackson. He would sometimes stay in hostels, and once he demanded to be served food. The woman working there explained that the kitchen was closed for the night. Jackson pulled out a knife and threatened her, but was overpowered by another male resident. He was thrown out of the hostel, but was not arrested. In 1980, when Jackson was 45 years old, his mother, Jean, died of cancer. Jackson was despondent and seemed to be spiraling downward. He had always been prone to more symptoms while under stress, and losing his mother was more than he could handle. He would soon launch a new obsession that would have near-fatal consequences. Teresa Saldana, after kicking off her career with her first film role in 1978, was consistently busy working as an actress. She had a number of roles in both films and television. She had moved to Los Angeles for more acting opportunities. In 1980, she played the wife of Joe Pesci's character in Raging Bull. The film was directed by Martin Scorsese and would earn eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Robert De Niro, which he would win. But it was the lesser-known movie Defiance, also released in 1980, that would become Arthur Jackson's obsession. In Defiance, Jan Michael Vincent plays a man named Tommy, a merchant marine who moves into a tough Lower East Side neighborhood in New York. The neighborhood is being terrorized by a gang, and Tommy is attacked by them. He is nursed back to health by a local girl, Marcia, played by Teresa Saldana. Tommy, rather than leaving the neighborhood, decides to fight back eventually defeating the gang and becoming a neighborhood hero. Along the way, he wins the girl as well, Marcia also becoming his love interest. Jackson saw the movie in January of 1981, only a couple of months after his mother's death. He thought he saw connections in the film to his own life, but of course, the film resembled his life not at all. He saw himself as Tommy, the outsider. He'd never been accepted or embraced by peers or neighbors either, but that was due to his odd behavior. But in the movie, the Tommy character is befriended by Marcia, who falls in love with him and supports and cares for him. This is the kind of relationship that Jackson never had in his own life. Jackson became obsessed with the character of Marcia, played by young Teresa Saldana. But unlike a normal infatuation or crush on an actor or actress that some may feel, Jackson didn't have romantic feelings towards Teresa. It was pretty well known that Jackson had sexual feelings only towards men, not women. The suicide attempt he'd had as a young man was due to a perceived rejection by another soldier he'd met while stationed in Germany. He admitted to some sexual acting out with another boy or boys as a preteen, and there was a local man in Aberdeen who Jackson was infatuated with, and later spoke of having a relationship with, a relationship that was almost surely just a fantasy. So it wasn't Teresa herself that Jackson was obsessed with, it was what she symbolized in his distorted thinking. She symbolized all the love and caring that he'd never had, and that he was now fixated on obtaining. 
But his distorted thinking also caused him to believe that the only way he could obtain eternal happiness with Teresa was to cause her death, and then he himself would die by receiving the death penalty. In this way, they could both enter heaven and be together. Now Jackson would begin to plan out what he would call his sacred mission. It would take him months to plan, but he never wavered in his goal to find and kill Teresa Saldana. The first thing Jackson would need to do would be to apply for a passport. Even though he had been deported from the U.S. twice, he was able to obtain one. Amazingly, no one reviewing his application noticed any records of his previous deportations. His passport was approved. Assuming Teresa Saldana lived in New York, he found a T. Saldana listed in the Manhattan phone book and made that his intended destination. He boarded a British Airways flight in London, headed for Kennedy Airport in New York City on New Year's Day, 1982. Once in New York, he decided he needed to obtain a gun in order to kill his victim. His plan was to steal one from a New York City police officer. He quickly determined that this would be too risky in New York, so he purchased a Greyhound Ameripass ticket, which allowed him unlimited travel across the U.S. He then headed west. First, he headed to San Francisco, and he was able to visit the site of one of his ongoing obsessions, Alcatraz Island. He went on the guided tour of the prison twice. He also traveled to San Jose to visit the Winchester Mystery House, another odd architectural wonder that was also rumored to be haunted. But he was still unable to get a gun and returned to New York City. His plan was to kill Saldana on January 24th, on the one-year anniversary of having seen the movie Defiance. But that day came and went without him being able to complete this goal. He was able, however, to reach her theater agent in New York by phone. He pretended to be a reporter from England doing a story on the actress. He found out from the agent that Saldana lived in Los Angeles most of the year, only coming to New York during the Christmas season to see her family. He was told that she would be in California at least until April. That same evening, he boarded a Greyhound bus and began a long, strange route towards Southern California. He headed down the East Coast with stops in Atlantic City and Washington, D.C., before continuing through the South, through Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, Arizona, and up to Colorado before finally heading towards California. He exchanged British money for American dollars along the way, never spending money on hotels or full meals, but conserving his cash by mostly sleeping in bus stations, washing up in public restrooms, and eating small, inexpensive snacks. However, he cut an odd figure wherever he went, which both helped and hurt him alternately. As often is the case, the mentally ill or homeless are often ignored by society and Jackson could walk around virtually invisible most of the time. But he sometimes caught the attention of law enforcement. He would seem to be loitering, with nowhere specific to be, and would be questioned and sometimes searched. They found his passport to be valid, and having no real cause to hold him, would just tell him to move along. He finally crossed the California border on February 26th. Once in Los Angeles, Jackson began his search for Teresa Saldana. He scoured public property records, but since Saldana was renting an apartment at that time, she was not listed. He also went to the office of the Southern California Gas Company to try and find her records, saying he was looking for a long-lost relative. He could not obtain any information there. On March 4th, he went to a private investigator's agency and for a $100 search fee was able to obtain her current address at 1263 North Hayworth Avenue in West Hollywood. Jackson had also been trying to obtain the needed address from other sources. 
He had continued to call Selma Rubin, Soldana's New York agent, using different names and trying to get information. Selma caught on to the ruse and refused to give him any information. And finally, the fourth time he called, she told him that if he called again, she would notify the police. Jackson had also been able to obtain Saldana's parents' unlisted home number. On March 8th, he called and reached her mother. He told her he was the director Martin Scorsese's assistant. Mr. Scorsese was in London, he explained, and needed her daughter's information as he was trying to contact her. Her mother was excited, believing that Scorsese, having cast her in the small role in Raging Bull, was now contacting her for another acting job in one of his movies. Thinking the call must be legitimate, how would he have their unlisted number? She gave him the phone number and also her address, since he insisted he'd need it in case they needed to send her a telegram. Teresa's mother called her with the news of the phone call. For a few minutes after her mother's call, Teresa was excited, dancing around the apartment she remembers, sure that Scorsese had another film role for her. Her excitement was soon shattered, however, because just a short time later, she received a phone call from Agent Selma Rubin. Teresa, she said, there's a net looking for you and I'm very worried. She began to account the strange phone calls from the man who insisted he needed to reach Teresa. Her heart dropped when she recognized one of the names the man used as the same name her mother had been given from the caller, who had purported to be Scorsese's assistant. Reuben, hearing that the man had tricked her mother into providing the address, now told Saldana to get out of the apartment immediately. She ran to her closest neighbor's apartment. She tried to call her husband, Fred Feliciano, who was at work at the UCLA campus, but could not reach him. She then called the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department, but was told that unless she was actually being confronted by the person, there was nothing they could do. What if he kills me, Teresa asked, incredulous. The officer said, because she was an actress, that this was common, and there was probably no danger. Just a fan trying to send a fan letter or a gift, he assured her. She began to relax and felt a little embarrassed. Still, she waited with her neighbor until her husband returned. They made a plan to be vigilant. Fred would walk her to and from her car to the apartment, and whenever he wasn't home, Teresa would stay with the neighbor or with other friends. By the end of the week, when nothing had happened, both Teresa and Fred began to relax, feeling it was all possibly just an overreaction. What she couldn't know was that Jackson was using this time to try and obtain a weapon. He still didn't have the gun he needed. On March 10th, he was able to purchase a cheap 5-inch wooden-handled steak knife. He still planned to try and steal a policeman's gun and would use the knife to subdue him along with a hammer he already carried in his bag. But he still never found an opportunity to carry out this plan. He was running out of money and becoming more desperate. At moments, he was almost ready to give up. He realized that he would be completely out of funds by Tuesday, March 16th. Maybe I will just give this whole thing up in defeat, he wrote in his diary, and go back to Great Britain. I am down to my last nine dollars. He even began to write a letter to Teresa, expressing his regret that his mission had been a failure. Late on the evening of Sunday, March 14th, Jackson wrote about something he recalled from a few weeks before. He'd been in a Hollywood church, and while in the quiet place of worship, he began to repeat over and over how Teresa was his salvation and his Jesus Christ. Without finishing the last sentence describing this memory, Jackson simply stopped writing. He placed the unfinished letter in his black bag, along with some other belongings, including the wood-handled knife. He walked to Saldana's apartment building and waited several hours outside late into the night. When he did not see her, he spent the rest of the night sleeping in the laundry room of a nearby apartment building. 
10 a.m. on Monday, March 15, 1982, Teresa Saldana prepared to leave her apartment to attend a music class at L.A. City College. Teresa particularly remembers this day because it started out so promising. She was 27 years old, in love with her husband, living in a lovely West Hollywood neighborhood, and was fulfilling her dream of being a full-time actress. She was up for a part on the hit television series Hill Street Blues, and she felt very hopeful that she would get the role. Kissing her husband goodbye, he asked her to wait for him to get dressed so he could walk her to her car. Teresa had almost forgotten the fear she'd had about the strange phone calls. It had been a week since the day she'd hidden in her neighbor's apartment, and now she felt there was nothing to worry about. She told him not to worry. I'll be fine, she said. As she walked to her car, she remembers affirming to herself, I am unafraid and no harm will come to me. Her car was parked on the street in front of the building next door. Teresa walked in the bright sunlight, and as she began to put her key in the door of her car, she heard a voice close behind her say, Are you Teresa Saldana? She looked over her shoulder and saw a man immediately to her left. She knew instinctively that this was the caller and that she was in danger. She immediately tried to run away from him, but he grabbed her by the shoulder. He then wrapped his other arm around her middle, holding her tightly. Struggling, she saw him reach into a bag slung over his shoulder and then raise his hand above his head. She only saw the knife blade for a split second before it was plunged into her chest. She screamed as he continued to stab her over and over. With an amazing force of will, she continued to scream out, Help! Help! He's killing me! He's killing me! She could sense that there were people around on the street nearby, but couldn't understand why no one was coming to her aid. Still trying to hold the man off, she was able to grab at the knife, but couldn't hold on long as the blade now was slicing through her hand. Almost losing consciousness now from the pain, she looked up, and she says she saw an angel. There behind the assailant was a tall, beautiful blonde man. As if in slow motion, I saw him pull the attacker away from me. Jeffrey Finn, a 28-year-old water delivery service employee, had been unloading an order from his truck 100 feet away when he heard the screams. He thought he saw a woman being beaten by a man, and as he ran toward them, he saw the knife. Finn grabbed Jackson's arm that was holding the knife at the same time wrapping his other arm around his neck. He pulled his arm back as far as it would go, forcing Jackson to drop the knife. The knife blade was bent from the force of the blows. He kneeled on top of Jackson, now face down on the pavement, holding his arms behind his back, and waited for police to arrive. Teresa, incredibly, was able to get up and lurch towards her apartment. She could hear the terrifying sound of blood gurgling up from the wounds in her chest with each breath she tried to take. Neighbors, hearing the screams, had called 911. Fred also heard the screams, and not realizing it was his wife, ran out of the apartment to see what had happened. Teresa, bleeding profusely, called out, He found me! He stabbed me! before falling into his arms. Back on the street with the sirens wailing towards the scene of the attack, Jackson asked Finn, who was still holding him face down, How long has it been since I stabbed her? Has five minutes been up yet? His compulsion, now believing he had killed Saldana, was to determine the precise time, so that he could record it later in his diary, along with the hundreds of other pages he had recorded since he first began his mission. Teresa had a punctured lung and was quickly bleeding out from over 10 stab wounds to her body. It was a miracle she hadn't died from the amount of blood she'd already lost. She had almost no blood pressure when she arrived at the hospital, 
and doctors immediately began life-saving methods. They spent four and a half hours repairing the most serious injuries, pumping 26 pints of blood into her to replace the blood loss in the process. Teresa woke the next morning, amazed and grateful to be alive, and then she felt the incredible amount of pain she was in. It hurt to take even a shallow breath. She was alive, but it would take a long time of physical and emotional pain to begin to heal. She would continue to have flashbacks and feel the terror rush back just as if the attack was happening all over again. She would be terrified to be alone, sure that her attacker would return and finally kill her this time. There was no doubt who Teresa Saldana's attacker was. Not only was he caught in the act, but he quickly directed investigators to all the evidence of his mission. The extensive writings in his diary were plain to read and detailed his plan from start to finish. The letters he had written confessing to the crime ahead of time were found in the locker at the bus station that he directed investigators to. A day after Teresa was brought back from near death, a detective from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department came to get a statement from her about the attack. The detective informed her that her assailant was a Scottish drifter who had fixated on her after seeing her films. His journal, he said, detailed his deranged plan to kill her in order to, quote, send her to heaven. He then wanted to be executed so that he could join her. A seven-page document titled Solemn Petition for Execution was found among Jackson's possessions, along with two consent-to-search forms written and signed by Jackson and a red pocket diary with the inscription, CO, the Office of Michael the Archangel and Vice President of Heaven. In fact, Jackson was very matter-of-fact during the whole questioning. Until, that is, he found out that Teresa hadn't died as was his plan. When he found out she'd survived the attack and was now in stable condition, he became upset and angry. They quickly found Jackson's entire history, from his commitments to mental hospitals over the years to his police records and deportations. They also found his detailed account of the lengths he went to locate Saldana. Jackson was tried on two counts, both felonies, attempted murder in the first degree, and assault with a deadly weapon. The only real defense his attorneys had at their disposal, given all the evidence, was not guilty by reason of insanity, a defense that Jackson would not consider. He continued to insist that his religious-based mission was the justification for his actions. Teresa was present two weeks after her attack at the preliminary hearing. Still in much pain and in a wheelchair, she nevertheless wanted to give testimony to make sure he was charged with her attempted murder. He tried to kill me, she would continue to repeat. She wanted to make sure they knew it wasn't just a stabbing or an attack, but an attempted murder. He was held on $10,000 bail. On September 30, 1982, Arthur Jackson's trial for first-degree attempted murder began. The prosecution would have to concede to the fact that Jackson was a seriously disturbed man, but they would also emphasize that the level of planning and thought put into the attack showed that he was fully capable of rational and methodical thought. While his actual motive might seem crazy, he still did have a motive and a reason for trying to kill her. And the motive did sound crazy when put together as a narrative for the jury. Jackson, the prosecutors explained, quote, believes he is on a divine mission from God. He wants to be executed in Alcatraz, D-block, because a man named Joseph Kretzer was killed in the riot of Alcatraz in 1946, and that Kretzer was Mr. Jackson's soulmate, and that he is in purgatory, and that his soul cannot be released until Mr. Jackson is likewise executed, unquote. Never mind the fact that Jackson had never met Kretzer, or that Alcatraz hadn't been used as a prison since 1963, 
and also that no inmates were ever executed at Alcatraz. D-Block was a wing where the most problematic prisoners were housed. Teresa herself testified at the trial. She accounted the attack, and jury members viewed the photos of her wounds. Her surgeon laid out how serious her injuries were and that she was, in fact, clinically dead before being brought back through extensive life-saving measures. Teresa told of having to be hospitalized for three and a half months and the toll it took on her mentally, physically, and psychologically, and also the serious effects it had on her husband, parents, and other loved ones. Jeffrey Fenn, the man who saved her by pulling her attacker off of her, also testified as to the ferocity of the attack, stating that it took all of his strength to pull Jackson away from her. Fenn had also gone on to fulfill his goal of becoming a police officer. The jury deliberated for only a short time before coming back with a unanimous verdict of guilty on both counts, first-degree attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Sentencing was held one month after the verdict. California's Victims' Bill of Rights Act had been passed in 1982, and one of its provisions held that victims, their next of kin or their attorney, was allowed to make an impact statement at sentencing or parole hearings. Teresa made her statement reiterating the toll the crime had taken on her and her family. There was also a report submitted by a probation officer who had interviewed Jackson and reviewed his history before the sentencing. He recommended that the longest sentence possible be served on Jackson due to his ongoing lack of remorse for his crime, as well as his belief that, if released, he would still be a danger to society. The state had already filed with the Immigration and Naturalization Service the particulars of Jackson's crime and his sentence. The INS, armed with this information, placed a hold on Jackson, meaning that he would be subject to deportation once released from state custody. Unfortunately, being sent back to his home country would mean there would be no ongoing supervision by the U.S. courts or anyone after his release. The judge, while stating that he regretted that he couldn't hand down a longer sentence, did give Jackson the longest sentence possible for his crimes at that time. He received nine years for the attempted first-degree murder charge, four years for the assault with a deadly weapon charge, and an additional three years for inflicting great bodily harm, for a total of 16 years. This sentence would be reduced 253 days for credit served, or the time he'd already served while waiting his trial and sentencing, and an additional 126 days was deducted for good time, meaning that the time already served had been without incident. Jackson would be eligible for parole when half of his sentence had been served in 1988 if there were no black marks on his prison record until then. No one thought this sentence was long enough, nor did they believe that Saldana would ever be safe if Jackson were allowed to go free. He had said as much in every interview he had with investigators, prison officials, and psychiatrists. He still very much felt he needed to complete his mission, i.e. kill Teresa Saldana. But in 1988, while serving his sentence at Atascadero State Hospital, Jackson wrote a five-page letter to London's Metropolitan Police Department. In it, he confessed to a 1967 bank robbery and murder. Because the letter contained unpublished facts about the crime, the authorities took it very seriously. In 1967, a man had entered a bank in London with a note demanding cash from the bank teller. He showed her a gun. The teller, thinking the gun looked fake, grabbed the bank robber's arm. He pulled away, scattering the bag of money containing mostly coins that the teller had started to give him. He ran out of the bank and was chased by a small group of men who had seen him flee. At one point during the chase, he turned around and fired, hitting and wounding two of the men pursuing him. 
he was still being chased by 33-year-old Anthony Fletcher, a construction worker and married man with three children. Backed into a dead end, the robber fired the gun, hitting Fletcher in the stomach and killing him almost instantly. The robber then fled on foot and got away. Over 20 years later, Jackson wrote a letter with details only the perpetrator could know. A detective from Scotland Yard flew to meet with him and determine if he was, in fact, the unidentified bank robber and murderer. After the meeting, the detective was convinced that Jackson must be the man they had been looking for for over two decades. Asked why he wrote the letter, since he had gotten away with the crime, Jackson explained that he wanted out of the Tascadero. He felt he was in the wrong place and wanted to go to a regular prison. What he wanted was to be transferred back to Great Britain to serve his prison time there. After matching Jackson's fingerprints to the evidence that had been held in their cold case files, they were sure he was the perpetrator, and they made plans to extradite him back to England to stand trial. Saldana, hearing of this, began to fight Jackson's extradition. Having gone through the justice system, she realized that it often failed victims. She had experienced it firsthand and began to speak out for herself and for other victims of crime. Now she felt she needed to fight the extradition and have Jackson serve his entire time for the crime he committed against her before he was sent home. She was afraid that he would either, one, be found not guilty of the former crime and end up going free, or two, be paroled at some point, and either way, she was still convinced he would try to find a way to get back and finish her off. She was not about to take that chance. First, after finding out that Jackson had sent letters that continued to make threats on her life to a producer of The Geraldo Show, she filed charges. He was ultimately tried and sentenced to five more years in prison in the United States. He ultimately served 14 years in California, being transferred to Vacaville State Prison to finish his sentence. In 1996, he was extradited to England to be tried for the bank robbery and murder of Anthony Fletcher. He was found not guilty, but this was due to what was called diminished responsibility. It meant he could not be sentenced to prison, but diminished responsibility carried with it the requirement that he be sent to a psychiatric facility until he could be found fit to be released to society. In fact, many times it means the person might never be free again. Arthur Jackson was sent to Broadmoor State Prison for the Criminally Insane in 1997. Later, at his request, he was transferred to the State Mental Hospital in Scotland, his home country. He still showed his capacity to be dangerous, once fixating on a female attorney who worked for some of the other inmates, and he threatened her life. He was never found fit for release and died in 2004, still incarcerated at the state hospital. He was 69 years old, and his death was ruled a result of natural causes. Ironically, he had only spent 14 years after being found guilty of attempted murder in the United States, but was incarcerated for the rest of his days after being found not guilty in Great Britain. While Teresa Saldana would always bear the physical and emotional scars of that terrible day in 1982, she would go on to have a successful acting career and a full life. Her best-known role was playing Rachel Scully in the television series The Commish from 1991 to 1996. She worked in films and television until the early 2000s and also founded and ran the organization Victims for Victims that advocated for anti-stalking laws and other rights for victims of violent crimes. Her attack took a toll on her marriage, and she and Fred divorced. She married Phil Peters, an actor, in 1989, and they had one child together. Teresa Saldana died just this past summer on June 6, 2016, after a short illness. She was 61 years old. 
While Teresa Saldana was able to begin lobbying for victims' rights, including the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, and would fight for anti-stalking laws, it would take a tragic crime against another young actress before the California anti-stalking law would be passed in 1990. That story next time on Once Upon a Crime. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Follow the show on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.